In that case, I think the next sound Let's you're going to hear is going to be a little bit of music, and then we'll go. Yeah, we oh God, Jake, you beat me to it. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams, and welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdal. It is Tuesday. Today, that means single show, single topic, globalization is the topic du jour. Everybody's been talking about it, powering the global economy, lets you buy holiday gifts from almost anywhere really cheaply and have them delivered to your front door. Well, yeah, but maybe what we think about globalization is not what we ought to be thinking about globalization. That's what we're going to talk about today. Yes, and our guest today makes the case that the narrative we've had around globalization doesn't actually match reality. Her name is Shannon O'Neill. She's a senior fellow of Latin American Studies with the Council on Foreign Relations, a nonpartisan think tank. And she's the author of the new book, The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So what do we have wrong about globalization? What I would say we have wrong are two things. One is over these last 40 years, as we think about the world opening up, there have only been about two dozen countries, 24, 25 countries that really have taken advantage of that, have really seen their economies transform with trade and foreign direct investments. So most of the world, dozens of other countries really didn't see a big change. They didn't participate in this globalization. So it's not as widespread as we often think. That's one The other thing is when they opened up, when companies went abroad or money went abroad, it didn't usually go to the other side of the world. It didn't usually go global. It went more regional. So usually when companies went abroad, um, they would look toward their neighbors, to countries nearby. And we see that in a lot of numbers. But one I'll give you right here is the average good that is traded, so a good that goes abroad, it goes about 3,000 miles. And that Mm. is about the distance from New York to Los Angeles. It does not get you to Shanghai. So those are the two things I think we get wrong, uh, but you can see in the economic data when you dig into it. So basically, it's, it's just to your first point, it's basically like the G20, right? The biggest economies in the world, they're getting all the benefit and the other 170 ish, whatever it is, countries are just out of luck. Well, lots of the countries that actually globalized are not in the G20. So it's countries like Taiwan and South Korea and Thailand. It's countries in Eastern Europe. It's Mexico, which is part of the G20. But it's a lot of those that are in regions, in the European region, in the Asian region, or in North America, that hooked into their neighbors, that began trading with them and and seeing investment come in or investing in their neighbors, that really got the benefits here, that they became part of, we talk about global supply chains, but they're actually more often than not, regional supply chains that they hooked into. I think a lot of folks maybe are familiar with NAFTA, and I guess that's an example of of this. But can you give another concrete example of what this looks like? Sure. We've seen these three big regions, Asia, Europe, and North America, rise during these last 40 years. And North America was led by NAFTA, so that's a free trade agreement uh, that really accelerated the contacts and the creation of of supply chains, whether it's automotive or aerospace or food and the like. But in other parts of the world, it's happened in different ways. So in Europe, it came through lots and lots of treaties, more than just one treaty. Is sort of in the U.S. or in, in NAFTA, you saw treaties of of Rome and Nice and Maastricht and all others that led to. Uh, getting rid of tariffs, getting rid of regulations, creating one currency, creating one passport. That's one model that was very top-down. The Asian model is quite different. It was led by companies, by CEOs. First, the Japanese going out to, at the time, very poor countries like Taiwan and South Korea. 
Then as they became wealthier, their CEOs, their companies went out to Vietnam and Thailand and later to China. And today you see China going out and doing the same model, going in foreign direct investment in many of its neighbors. So it really was led by private investment. Governments would often help with, with policies or development assistance and the like. But it was a bottom-up model, say, compared to the others. How did how did the narrative, how did the myth come to be? Because, you know, everybody's like, oh, yeah, globalization, that's the way it's going, and that's where we are. And, and now here you are standing, you know, athwart history, as it were, saying not really. I think we have lots of high-profile cases of real globalization. It's not to say that that hasn't happened. We have... Big companies that, you know, we all know, whether it's Boeing or Coca-Cola or, or pick some of others um, that have gone global, that are producing things, are sourcing from 50, 60 different countries. But alongside the lesser known brand names or the lesser known companies, there's, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of other companies that, yes, they did go abroad, but when they did, they just went next door. Mm. And they found that to be much more profitable than going far, far away. And in fact, McKinsey did a study and they even coined a term. They call it the globalization penalty, which is Hmm. if you go abroad, your profit margins go up often. But if you go too far abroad, the more distance you go from your home country, actually your profit margins tend to go down. Hmm. I wonder if part of the myth is what people can sort of get their hands on and see because we have these country of origin labels. And I'm thinking about the fact that I can pick up an object like an appliance or or a a knickknack in my house and see on it that it says made in China. But I can't necessarily, you know, take apart a car and understand which components are moving between Mexico and Canada. Does it matter? Is is are the different types of products that move regionally versus globally shaping this myth? I think that's definitely part of it. And the other big shift over the last 40 years in you know what we call globalization is that what is moving across borders is very different than, say, in the earlier 20th century. So today, 75% of the things that are traded are what economists would call intermediate goods. So they're not the final product. They're the inputs, the pieces and the parts and the raw materials that go into, you know, that appliance or that car or uh, that, you know, processed food that we might eat. And that is really where these supply chains come in. And so your, you know, your blender might say made in China, but it for sure has parts from, say, Thailand or Malaysia or Vietnam or maybe a chip from South Korea. All of these parts come together. So it's really made in Asia. Uh, and that's where this regionalization comes in. Um, and I would also say as the U.S. thinks about the challenges to U.S. competitiveness and to jobs here in the United States, we're really competing against Asia, not China. And we should be thinking about our own you know, regional team if we want to be able to compete more globally with our products. Expand on that a little bit. Help me explain. Talk to me like I'm seven. Why does this matter? So this matters because obviously if you listen to our political debates, it seems like everybody from all sides is pretty suspicious of trade and worried about the effects on the United States. And indeed, we have seen changes in our economy and communities that have been hollowed out because of, of trade and because of you know what people call globalization. I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and that's mm-hmm. definitely a, a place that has suffered a lot in the last 30, 40 years. But what I think we miss in our politics, and as I try to explain to my kids, I would say, is <laughs> that not all trade is created equal. 
And when a factory opens up in Mexico, say, it is more likely than anywhere else to buy parts or pieces from the United States. Uh, when a factory opens up in China, it's much more likely to buy those supplies from other countries in Asia. And there's, I'm going to give you a few just numbers to yeah. back that up. So when an import comes in from Mexico, so when the U.S. is importing something from Mexico, on average, 40% of that product, of the value added of that product, was made in the United States. And those are those intermediate goods or those services that U.S. workers, U.S. companies, U.S.-based companies are supplying that go into the goods that, that are, are the inputs that go into mm -hmm. the factory in Mexico and then are sent back here. When something comes in from China, it's less than 5% that was U.S. made. And instead, it's much more supplies from different Asian countries. So trade with Mexico keeps U.S. factories humming, keeps U.S. jobs here, and even creates new jobs. And that's something I think we miss in our political debates and, and you know, some of our conversations around the kitchen table, too. Okay, who's who's eating dinner at the kitchen table? Come on, <laughs> um, but what we try this, at our house. <laughs> I know, right? That's good. That's nice. Um, what about this argument, though, that market forces are just too powerful, and globalization is inevitable? That this is just where we're going. You know, that is the idea out there. But what's interesting is over the last 40 years, when you dig into these economic data and the numbers, it's just not the case. The world hasn't been as flat as as we think it is. Uh, and I would say today, as we look at all these big forces that are reshaping international trade, whether that's, you know, automation that's growing in manufacturing, whether that's demographics that are changing some places of the world are getting older faster than they were in the past, whether that's climate change and the way governments are putting in places, you know, border taxes or other things to try to cut emissions so it costs more to go an extra mile, or whether that's geopolitics and the divides between the U.S. and China, all of those, I would say, are limiting or most of them are limiting globalization and leading back more and more to this regionalization. So I um, don't think we ever really got to this globalization. And as I look forward for the next 10 or 20 years, I don't see these forces pushing us to get there anytime soon. That's so interesting. Even now, with with all the research you've done, you say we're we're not actually going to get to globalization. It's just going to be regionalism for for you know the next twenty years. I think that's where we're headed. You know, part of it is we're seeing uh, lots of free trade agreements signed between countries within regions. Uh, so a lot of the you know the treaties and things are leading us more in that regional way. Uh, we're seeing, you know, as automation kicks in, low wages don't matter quite as much as they used to. So it's not mm -hmm. as profitable to go and make things in in factories oceans away. Um, we're also seeing, as you know, as you mentioned in your lead-in, we want, you know, our Amazon package, our package, we're going to order it today. We want it delivered in three days. So we make it for, you know, for the holidays. Um, in order to do that, time costs a lot of money. So mm -hmm. having something oceans away that takes, you know, six weeks on a on a container ship across one of the oceans, that's it's not as profitable as it used to be. Uh, and then I think the geopolitics are are dividing it up again, where there are a number of industries, and it seems like every day more, where we really want to make sure that those things are made here on our own soil, whether that's semiconductors or medicines or or electric vehicle batteries or things like that. So we're looking, I think we're seeing a lot of factors that are pushing towards more regionalization, fragmenting a bit the world rather than uh, making it more seamless. But given that the U.S. 
still has the world's reserve currency. I mean, assuming that we keep raising the debt limit um, or <laughs> don't default on our debt globally, but that's <laughs> another conversation. And and we are the largest economy. Does it? Do we really have to worry about competing with Asia and the EU and and these different regions when at the end of the day, you know, dollars still matter in the global marketplace? Dollars do matter, but I would say we do need to worry about competing there because in the United States, we're a robust country of 330 million people, but, you know, that leaves another seven, almost eight billion people out there. And, you know, our companies and our workers should want to compete for those consumers. And as you look at the next billion people who are going to come into the middle class, who are going to be buying all new appliances and clothes and and everything else you can imagine, most of them are going to be in Asia. And do our companies want to have a piece of that market? I think they do, and they should want to do that. And so that's where I think we should be focused. And really, to me, the bottom line is this. If we want to put up protections and and just stay with the U.S. market, that is a market we can serve, and it's a big one and, and a quite wealthy one. Um, but it puts limits on our companies. And in fact, it'll make our uh, the things that we buy in the United States more expensive. So you'll buy fewer of them, right? If that car costs $2,000 more, you might wait six months before you replace the one that you have. So you'll see stagnant markets or even shrinking ones. If we think about uh, competing more globally and trying to get access to all those other customers that are around the world, to do that well, we're going to have to think about regionalization too. We're going to have to think about how do we make high quality and affordable products. And to do that, we're going to need to create regional supply chains too. That is the path to me to better access a bigger slice or a, I guess a, a slice of a bigger pie, um, which is the global economy. Do you think um, uh, globalism, you know, uh, let me back up for a minute. So Adam Posen and, and many others, but Adam Posen at, at Peterson has has written that he thinks globalization now is over and we're going the other way. What, what do you think of that? So I've talked with Adam about this, and and I do think we're becoming more regional. Um, but as I would say to you, or I say to Adam, is I think we were already pretty regional. Um, and so mm. we're building on a trend or a base that was already there. And, you know, I would say I don't think this has to be all bad. I think this is a great opportunity, frankly, for the United States. We're seeing a time when there's a fluidity to supply chains for all these other forces we've been talking about, and geopolitics, one of them. And so companies and boards of directors are all talking about where do I want to put my global footprint? Where do I want to build things? Or where do I want to sell things? And the U.S. has a big opportunity to bring some of that back to to this side of, of the ocean, from either side of the ocean. But to do that, I don't think it can do it alone. It's going to need to find ways to work with other nations and to build things across borders in ways that make them you know, a good quality product, but also make them not too expensive. Shannon O'Neill is a senior fellow at uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. That's a nonpartisan think tank. Also, she writes books. Her new one is called The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. Shannon, thanks a lot. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks so much for having me. See ya. Pay no attention to me bonking the table there. But anyway, <laughs> you know. I'm like scanning back through my brain of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seven, eight years ago when I was traveling in the Middle East and Africa. And I actually really see what she's talking about. Because I remember when I first moved abroad, suddenly being exposed to all of these European-made products Mm -hmm. that I didn't even know Europe made, like all of these air conditioners and brands of cars I'd never heard of and um, brands of foods in the grocery store. And it was much more a direct connection 
between Europe and these various countries, especially in North Africa, than with the United States or with China. And the same in sort of, um, you know, East Africa and and such. There were very distinct brands that came from other parts of Africa and much less, you know, um, the other side of the world. Remember, like, all I mm-hmm. used to eat these cookies from Turkey when I was oh, wow. living in Egypt that I never find here at all. And, yeah, I, I've seen that in action. I never really thought about it that way. Hmm. Yeah, it's... it's uh, you accept it as a given, right? And then, really, somebody yeah. does the research, and yeah, it's kind of not. Anyway, there you go. Something we thought we knew we lived <laughs> on that you were wrong about <laughs> almost. what you did there. Very well done. <laughs> Thank you. I try. Well, let us know what you think. What does globalization look like in your life or maybe regionalization? Uh, How has it affected you? Or maybe you think it hasn't. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. And we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. Okay. Um, welcome back, everybody. It's time for our news fix. I was clicking on your link, and I was just oh, like, yeah. you love you some Semaphore, don't you? Well, yeah, look, Semaphore is really good. So Semaphore, let me rephrase that. What I've seen of Semaphore so far, because it's been around for like a heartbeat, uh, has been really mm-hmm. good. And Liz Hoffman has a piece today about Elon Musk and Sam Bankman-Fried. Elon Musk, of course, of Twitter. Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, of FTX. And And I won't go into the nitty-gritty details, but suffice it to say that... Rich people are just like a circular exchange of money going round and round. Turns out that Sam Bankman-Fried had $100 million worth of Twitter stock. And as Twitter was imploding, Sam Bankman-Fried was like, hey, I'll keep it in. And Elon was like, yes, we'd love to have you. And uh, it's just, it's a shell game. That's what I'm saying. Rich people run a shell game with with money and the global economy. That's where I am. That's what I got. You got to read it. And, you know, these, these numbers are just so unfathomable for most of like, us. Like $100 million, I, like it was 25 cents, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Makes me crazy. That's whatever. <sighs> yeah. Well, 
Mine actually uh, relates to what Shannon was just saying in a roundabout sort of way. Uh, so first of all, CNN has a really cool interactive on their website right now looking at inflation and the Thanksgiving dinner. I'm sure many of us have seen the headlines of like, oh, your Thanksgiving dinner is going to be more expensive this year because of inflation, which is true. Mm-hmm. Um, although I've seen some ads on TV from Walmart where they're claiming that your Thanksgiving dinner will cost the same, that they're reducing prices to like rebalance it so that you would end up paying the same amount. But, you know, it it is an ad. Um, But the interesting thing about the CNN piece is that they take the different components of your Thanksgiving plate with little pictures of the different foods on the plates and explain why each element got more expensive. Uh, like that's really what good, actually. supply chain yeah. things happen. So I'm just scrolling down at like the turkey, you know, avian influenza is affecting turkey prices. Bad weather has choked potato supplies. Cranberry crops were smaller this year. Uh, for your salad, romaine and green leaf lettuce have been hurt by crop hmm. disease. For your pie, <laughs> I'm reading from it. Any way you slice it, pie is going to be pricier this year. <laughs> Nice. That was nicely done. Uh, Nice. So, and while I was reading about inflation, I saw in one of the Axios newsletters today, uh, Axios Macro, it's one of many, many Axios newsletters, and it was talking about this deal in Germany where, let's see, There's a metal union in Germany, right? And they Mm -hmm. had to negotiate a new labor deal. Mm -hmm. And they finally agreed to it. And this union has 3.9 million members. And and it's a really crucial union for the auto industry, which is really big in Germany. And they agreed in their labor contract to a 5.2% pay raise in 2023 and a 3.3% increase in 2024. Good for them. However, that is significantly less, and I'm reading here from Axios, Mm -hmm. than the 11.6% rise in German consumer prices notched over the last year. So it's a big deal because they are accepting a pay raise less than the cost of inflation, which means that their wages are effectively going down. And if you look at inflation here in the United States, we're seeing the same thing, right? Inflation has gone up so much. And yes, we've seen wage growth, but not at the same pace as inflation. And so people's real wages have effectively gone down. And the reason it relates to me in my head with what Shannon was talking about is one thing that does seem to be global is inflation and all over the world. And we talk about supply chains feeding into inflation and mm-hmm. I, trying to unpack how these things interact, you know, because, yes, we know that supply chains have factored into inflation, I guess, regional supply chains. But globally, we are seeing real wages go down because of inflation. Yeah. Yes to everything Kimberly just said. It's really fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah it totally is. And I never would have looked at what German labor unions are doing otherwise. Mm-hmm. So uh, thanks, Neil Irwin and Courtney Brown. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, that's it for our news fix. Let's do the mailbag. 
Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right. So last Friday, we talked about a lot of teachers who are choosing to leave the profession. They're burned out. They're tired. All sorts of reasons. And one of those teachers sent us this voice memo. Mm -hmm. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Lisa from Pasadena. I'm a former teacher who, after 17 years at a Title I school in a large urban district, left teaching to move to a career in ed tech a year and a half ago. I had been thinking about this for years, not because of my campus administration or my high school students, but the deep systemic failures at the highest level that were just soul-crushing. With my national board certification and extra credentials, this move cost me a significant pay cut, and I'm sad about abandoning my students. In addition to being paid what we're worth, teachers need more space to be their best for students, and smaller classes is just as important for achieving this. Thanks for making me smart. Hmm. I I heard this via, you know, at mentions and in chats and mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. quite a bit that it's not just the pay. It's yeah. the classroom sizes. It's the resources. It's the structural support that is also making it hard for teachers. And, you know, I can't begrudge anybody, no. it, you know, from these sort of anecdotal stories granted that that we've been hearing it sounds pretty pretty hard yeah um yeah totally uh if you've got thoughts on that by the way you know how to get a hold of us you know how to get a hold of us we'll we'll tell you later but uh send us your thoughts on everything you hear on this podcast before we go we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the make me smart question which is what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about here you go hi this is jocelyn from denver and I thought I knew that talking about the weather was extremely boring because <laughs> you can't find anything else to talk about. And so you just talk about the weather. Now I know that talking about the weather is really interesting because it's something that all of us experience together. And it's really cool to get other po- people's point of views on that. Thanks for making me smart. I love talking about the weather. 75 and sunny today in Los Angeles. I opened up the back patio. Yeah, we often do talk about the weather because it's always so do. different here yeah, yeah. <laughs> than it is That's where true. you That's are. That's true. We do talk about it a lot. <laughs> oh, man. But one of my enduring memories from elementary school is that in the third grade, my teacher, Miss Sinks, who's one of my best teachers, love her to death, had us do this assignment where you take cotton balls and you pull them apart to make them in the shapes of different types of clouds oh, wow. to learn what like a cumulus cloud looks like or a cirrus cloud or a cumulonimbus or an alto cirrus or alto stratus and all those other things. And to this day, I'm like trying to ID clouds in my head in the sky. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. That's and cool. when my niece was visiting one time, you know, I, I was looking out the window and I was like, oh man, a bad storm is coming. And she was like, how do you know? You weren't looking at your phone. And I was like, let me tell you about cumulonimbus clouds. <laughs> you weren't looking at your phone. 
It's like you can actually know what the weather is going to do without looking at your phone. And here's how. Send us your (laughs) answers to the Make Me Smart questions, whether you get your news and weather by looking out the window or looking at your phone. Leave us a voicemail (laughs) at 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART is how you can do that. Oh, that's too funny. You weren't looking at your phone, Auntie Kimberly. <laughs> Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera and Courtney Bergsinger. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry. Charlton Thorpe is going to mix it down later. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer, Bridget Bodner, is working on Million Bazillion at the moment. Uh, it's AKA Make Me Smart for Kids. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. It's actually sunny and lovely here in D.C. at the good. moment. Good, good. Not too cold. It was bitter cold yesterday, though. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.